Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back here. It truly is a great joy for me to be able to bring God's Word to you. One of my absolute favorite things to do, so I am blessed in the absence of my father to be able to do this this morning. The last time I preached here a few weeks back, I preached on Mark chapter 8, you may remember. This was the story of Jesus' two-part healing of a blind man. And currently, we've been going through a sermon series on 1 Samuel. Now, there is a similarity between these texts and these recent sermons. And that is that they are both narrative texts. They are stories that we've been going through. Now, different parts of Scripture, they demand and they require different things from both the preacher and from the listening congregants. Each text comes with its own difficulties, its requirements, and its responsibilities. Now, in my personal experience, I think that narrative texts tend to be a little bit easier on the listening congregation. They're not quite as demanding as some other texts of Scripture. One's mind can sort of drift away for a minute. They shouldn't. But your mind can drift away for a minute, and you can hook back in easily into the storyline or the line of thought. You may recall listening to recent sermon series on 1 Samuel, Ruth, Esther, and then juxtapose that to maybe a sermon series on Ephesians or the book of Revelation. Some are a little bit more difficult than others. Now, some passages of Scripture allow the pastor to preach what I would call a theological sermon. One might even say that certain passages of Scripture demand that the preacher preach a theological sermon. And I once heard a pastor say that high theology is highly practical. You may have heard that before. So I'm not too worried about preaching a theological sermon today because Romans 5 is a passage that certainly demands that we do so. So this then is a fair warning that this text is going to require something special out of the congregation. It might be slightly demanding due to its theological richness. But these things will indeed be very, very practical. So I'd encourage you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 and leave them open throughout the sermon, as we'll reference the passage multiple times, and it will be helpful if you have it opened. Now, as many of you know, I teach philosophy and have been doing so for about a decade And many in the modern church, many in modern evangelical circles, have been very quick to dismiss wholesale the achievements, accomplishments, and basically the whole field of postmodern philosophy. And their instincts in so doing may be well-intentioned and may actually have some merit, as there is a lot to dislike about postmodern philosophy. Rampant individualism a rejection of ultimate authority, extreme relativism, and even nihilism in some extreme cases. But it would be very foolish to deny some of the merits of the field, particularly the fact that the postmodern philosophers brought to light in a very real way the idea that one cannot view the world except through a worldview. I'll repeat that. One cannot view the world except through a worldview. There is no way to approach reality, people, texts, events, history, 
from a completely neutral standpoint. There are no brute facts that just exist out there in the world that you can judge from a purely objective standpoint, from a purely objective point of view. That is an impossibility. Now, there are many different meta-narratives or what we would call grand, large stories or lenses through which we interpret the world around us. And for Christians, there are many different meta-narratives or lenses through which we interpret the Bible, through which we interpret Scripture. The problem is, at least in my experience, most of those meta-narratives or lenses that we view Scripture through aren't very good. Now, these lenses, worldviews, meta-narratives, whatever we want to call them, they're not just some inevitable framework for us to fret over or worry about. But many times, those frameworks can be extraordinarily helpful. They're useful. After all, that Bible that you have in front of you, it's a really large book. And if you don't have some kind of a story to tie it all together, you can easily find your way wandering off the reservation. And many times, you're going to find yourself stumbling into heretical theological territory, places where you don't want to be. Now, what we need to do when we are picking a lens through which to view Scripture, picking a lens through which to understand the text, is something that is deeply important, and that is this. We must let Scripture tell us how we should interpret Scripture. I want to repeat that. We have to let Scripture tell us how we interpret Scripture. It is a good and necessary practice that we use the categories that the authors of holy and inspired scripture used when they interpreted scripture. We use their lenses in order to sum up the whole text. We use their meta-narratives. And a failure to do this can lead to the creation of a Procrustean bed. That may be a new term to you, a Procrustean bed. If any of you have studied Greek mythology, you might be familiar with the character Procrustes. Procrustes was the son of Poseidon, and he was a nasty, nasty character. And what Procrustes did is he set up a house along a road that was busily traveled. And he would invite weary travelers into his house to sleep in his bed. Sounds like a nice guy. But what Procrustes would do is he would have the people come and lay in his bed. And those that were too short for his bed, he would bind their arms and their legs and he would stretch their body so that they fit the bed perfectly. And those that were too tall for the bed, he would saw off their legs when they fell asleep, so that they too fit the bed perfectly. But no matter what, if you entered Procrustes' house, you were going to fit that given shape perfectly. Now I think many of us do this with the Bible, with the gospel. We stretch it where we need it stretched, and we cut off the parts that don't fit into our bed or don't fit into our worldview. But the exact opposite should be and needs to be the case. We need to let the gospel stretch us. We don't want to have the gospel squeezed into our societal norms, into our cultural proclivities, but we should be conformed by the gospel into the image of Christ. And a very good way to stop fitting scripture into our Procrustean beds is to read Scripture the way the authors of Scripture read Scripture. Now, our text today, Romans 5, 12 through 21, 
when you look at it, you'll notice right away that Paul has a meta-narrative, has a lens, has a worldview through which he, and hence we, should view all of Scripture. And that is through the paradigm of two men, Adam and Christ. Now, the portrayal of Christ as the last Adam, the counterpart to the first Adam, is a prominent feature of Paul's Christology and a prominent feature of his theology in general. Now, it's not peculiar to Paul. There's other authors of Scripture that use this narrative, Paul and Christ, or Adam and Christ. But Paul fleshes it out in a much richer fashion than any other author of Scripture. And he does so particularly in 1 Corinthians 15 and in our text today, Romans chapter 5. So a wonderfully Pauline, a wonderfully biblical way of summing up all of Scripture is to view it through the lens of two figures, two poles of history, Adam and Christ. And that's just how we'll approach the text today under just those two headings. So first we'll look at Adam, the man of death, and secondly, Christ, the man of life. So Adam, the man of death, Christ, the man of life. So first, let's look at Adam, the man of death. Now, one of the first things that should strike us about this text is that when Paul talks about Adam and Christ, he talks about them as more than individuals. He speaks about them as collective or universal figures. They are not just themselves in the text, but they are or represent all of mankind. After all, it's no coincidence that the Hebrew name Adam or Adam means humanity. For Adam is the universal man. Paul sees very clearly that the whole of humanity, you and I, all existed at first in Adam. And what Paul is interested in, in our text today, is the sin of the universal collective man that is Adam. He's interested here in what we would call original sin. And I don't think we get the scope of original sin. And I'm talking about us good five-point Calvinists. Those of us who can readily recite that we're totally depraved, we don't understand the range of original sin. Look, if you would, at the first verse of our text, verse 12. The text says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul is absolutely 100% not talking about your individual sins in this passage. He is talking about the one sin. The original sin. The corporate sin of the corporate man that fully and completely indicts you and I. Listen, if you would, to the overwhelming oneness of this text. So open to the passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21, and listen to the overwhelming oneness of the text, the extreme emphasis that Paul has on the one sin. Starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world where the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in and through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By my count, that's some 13 uses of the word one. Paul uses the word almost as much as my father uses the word eschatology. (laughs) Almost. But Paul wants to make it clear that Adam's sin is not just Adam's sin. Adam's sin is your sin. Adam's sin is my sin. Adam's sin is our sin. The great theologian, John Webster, says of this passage, It is important to grasp that to talk about original sin is not to suggest that some distant ancestor Adam failed and we are mysteriously infected with his guilt and curse. Original sin isn't a contagion or defect passed down through the generations of the human race until it finally reaches us and pollutes our lives also. Speaking that way, speaking in that mode, makes us feel that if at, that at our core, that we're really innocent. That's not the real us, we think. We've been polluted from the outside. Right? You see, we try to wriggle off the hook. But we are Adam's accomplices. We stand every bit as guilty as him in his original sin. Now, once again, I am not. And Paul is not talking about our guilt because of our numerous, countless individual sins. All those sins do is confirm the depravity that is already in you. All it does is confirm the wickedness that is already there. The young St. Augustine, you may be familiar with his story. He was dealing with this very problem, as detailed in his great work, The Confessions. He was wrestling deeply with the problem of sin, and he kept turning down different avenues that he thought would let him off the hook, whether that be Manichaeanism or different forms of Neoplatonism, anything that would tell him that the evil in him wasn't really him, that sin wasn't really his fault. It was something alien to his nature, something outside of him that was superimposed upon him. Now, I teach on St. Augustine in a couple of my philosophy courses, and I'm always reminded when teaching on him of hearing stories of women who have been abused. Often, the abused woman will say things that will try to justify and cope with the heinous actions of the man that has abused her. The abused woman will say things like, well, that's not the real him. He wasn't himself. You see, he was just tired. He was just a little bit upset. 
He had a bad week at work, but that's not who he really is. No, that's the real him. That's who he is. And that's the real you and I. The treasonous men and women in the garden with Adam, committing the act which Calvin calls not a childish intemperance, but a monstrous wickedness. That is you and I in Adam refusing to be satisfied with our subordinate position, refusing to be satisfied with our creaturely role, refusing to be ruled by God, and forever seeking to impose our own rule over God. We're never satisfied with our derivative state. Sin is not a foreign thing that infects your otherwise pure substance. But rather, sin is your nature. It is your essence, the substratum of your very being. It is who you are in Adam at base reality. Our natures are warped against God. It is really clear in reading Paul, especially in reading Romans 5, that Paul was no Pelagian. That is to say, he doesn't think that we have it within us to fulfill the law, to be righteous on our own. Calvin says of this passage, Frivolous then was the gloss by which formerly the Pelagians endeavored to elude the words of Paul and held that sin descended by imitation from Adam to the whole human race. For Christ in this case would become only the exemplar and not the cause of your righteousness. So another way of saying this is to say, we are not sinners because we imitate Adam. But we are sinners and then we imitate Adam over and over and over again. So what is it that we see about sin in this passage, this original sin? We see right away for Paul that sin leads to death. It brings death. Look at verse 12 once again. The verse reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin brings death, and Paul tells us that death reigns. It sets up a kingdom. It seeks to rule. We see this throughout the whole passage. Look at verse 14. It says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. We see it in verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. We see it again in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death. Death enters the world through the Trojan horse that is sin. Right? Sin seems to offer us freedom individuality, liberty. It seems to offer life, but it delivers the floodwaters of death. And a hard rain falls as death seeks to impose its rule and set up its dominion to set up a rain. And the plague that is death will not be satisfied until it touches us all. So sin brings death. Adam Brings death. The natural man is the house of the dead because God is life and sin untethers us from the source of life. Notice here then for Paul, 
insofar as we are tied to Adam, death is not just something that happens at the end of your life. But right now, this is death. Insofar as you are tied to the man of humanity, insofar as you are tied to Adam, we are the walking dead. Here is the opposite pole of the oft-talked-about-already-not-yet scheme. We are already dead as we await our final death. God is life, and we have removed ourselves from him. We cannot give life, nor can we keep ourselves alive. And insofar as we are tied to Adam, we are forever tied to death. The stench of death is a perfume that is doused over each and every one of us. And this is true. Now get this. Even of Adam, in his innocency, the stench of death is on Adam pre-fall, before his sin and our sin. And Paul tells us that much in 1 Corinthians 15. When comparing our new bodies, our Christ-like heavenly bodies, to our Adamic bodies, he says that Adam's pre-sin body is a body of death. Now, how can Paul make such a claim? How can Adam's body be a body of death before the fall, before sin? Well, Paul can say this by way of comparison to our new bodies. Because Adam, even in his innocency, he had the tree of life dangling over him like the sword of Damocles. The tree of life cast a perpetual shadow of death. Because without perfect, personal, and exact obedience, the tree would fall and Adam and we would be crushed under the weight of it. Without perfect obedience, the tree will not bear fruit and it will not give life. But the tree will do nothing but shade us in sin and condemnation and hide us from the light that is God. So the tree of life is a tree of death for all Adamic men. That's one way of viewing history. Man as tied to Adam. Man as tied to the man of death. And we need to get that story back into our heads so that we can retrieve a greater understanding of the utter transcendence of God, of his complete otherworldly otherness. We need to understand the massive chasm that exists between God and man. A chasm that can only be bridged by the man of life. The one whose incarnation, life, death, and resurrection has already laid the axe to the root of the tree of death. And that brings us to our second point. Christ, the man of life. Turn, if you would, in our text to verse 14. Look at verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Notice how Paul, when speaking of Adam, says that he is a type of the one that is to come. That makes Christ the antitype, right? The type is modeled after the form or the antitype, not vice versa. But this means that Adam... The original man is somehow modeled after Christ. 
Paul understands that the Christ event has done something far more radical than we often grasp. Christ has shattered linear time. Christ predates Adam as the norm of our anthropology. Another way of saying this is our anthropology is eschatological before it is biological. Having been united by the Spirit to the Son fundamentally alters our history, our anthropology, and our very ancestry. This is what salvation is. Salvation is not asking Jesus into your heart where he is at the controls and steers your life some way. Salvation, rather, is being united to the work of Christ by grace, through faith, in such a way that you die to sin and die to your Adamic lineage. Salvation, then, radically alters, changes your family heritage. Salvation changes your DNA. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at in our New Testament lesson from today. In John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus about salvation. Salvation comes by the death of the Adamic man and the rebirth into the second Adam, the man of life. Paul makes it clear, through the work of Christ, our lineage is no longer tied to the cavemen or even Adam himself. But our lineage is tied to the one who was before the foundations of the earth. Our anthropology, then, is an eternal, spiritual anthropology. For those he foreknew, he also predestined from eternity to eternity. Now, we all long for eternity. And not because one day we will be eternal beings but because we are eternal beings in Christ. Our origin story is uprooted out of the camp of Adam and then planted into the camp of Christ, into the camp of life. We have been moved from finitude to infinitude. The stories change. Some of you you might be familiar with the famous scientist, and tirelessly tedious self-promoter Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that name. He often repeats the line that we are stardust. And people seem to get a kick out of this, especially the female students in my college classes. They seem to love the phrase that we are stardust. He often repeats that line. And there's this whole cottage industry of posters and other little trinkets that you can buy online that say things like, Cheer up, honey. Remember, you're stardust. Or anytime you're feeling sad, remember, you are stardust. Now, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson's way of trying to make us feel good, or at least less suicidal. It's a fancy way of saying that you're cosmic trash spinning through a meaningless universe. These are the exact words of Neil deGrasse Tyson that have spawned the off-quoted, you are stardust line. The atoms of our bodies are traceable to stars that manufactured them in their cores and exploded these enriched ingredients across our galaxy billions of years ago. For this reason, we are biologically connected to every other living thing in the world. We are chemically connected to all molecules on Earth. And we are atomically connected to all atoms in the universe. We are not figuratively, but literally, stars. 
Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson is selling the story a little bit short. For we are far more than stardust. In Christ, we are eschatological beings who are united to the Father of all things by the Spirit through the work of the Son. Our essential nature is found in union with Christ, not Adam, not man. And hence, our nature predates Adam, predates the stars, predates space, and supersedes all time. So you and I are united to Christ, the man of life who brings life by grace which abounds. Look at verse 17 of our text. Verse 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It is here where an understanding of how intricately that you and I are tied to Adam pays dividends. It is only through that understanding that we can begin to appreciate how much more, as the text says, we live under grace as those united to Christ. Those fully and completely dead in Adam are fully and completely alive in Christ. We take on and are complicit in Adam's sin, the fullness of his sin, which is then expunged, covered over, engulfed, and dwarfed by the fact that you are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, Christ doesn't just spread a thin layer of righteousness over us, just enough to cover the stench of your wickedness, but we are baptized in his righteousness. It rushes over us, drowning the old man, which is sown in dishonor, that we might rise anew, robed in garbs, as bright as the light of Jesus Christ's spotless life. So we see for Paul in our passage that Adam and Christ are comparative collective figures. They're comparative collective figures. But they are not, and I repeat, they are not equivalent figures. Death and life are not equally strong forces battling it out. One, the text tells us, is much more much greater than the other. Jesus Christ is infinitely more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. For Christ is life, and Adam is a creature. He's nothing but a derivative destroyer. He can only destroy what is already made. Death, you see, is secondary. It is not primary. But Christ, who is life, is the original creator powerful redeemer and recreator. He gives life, he redeems life, and not the least bit of life can be found outside of Christ. Outside of Christ stands only those men that are still in the camp of Adam, men in the camp of death. So Adam and Christ, they stand as the two poles of reality. And each Adam inaugurates a kingdom. The first Adam brought sin, the reign of sin, which led to death. The second Adam brings the reign of those who are drenched in his grace. Now, those two alternate kingdoms, they're social worlds. They're two completely distinct modes of being. 
And in our baptism, the baptized are yanked out of the former world and implanted in the other world. So as one theologian says, to your baptized children, we can say, you are holy. Live like it. You are saints. Live as a saint. Your baptism is a sign that you share in the life of Christ. You share in life and no longer share in death. Death has no hold on you. You are in the camp of Christ. You are no longer in the camp of Adam. Because formerly, you lived under the tyrannical reign of sin and death. But we don't live there anymore. We've changed area codes. And we've been plucked out of standard linear time, the time of entropy, the time of death. And this is true because you are united to Christ. And you are united to Christ in a deeply, deeply personal way. A way that I don't think many of us quite understand how personally you are united to Christ. A way that scripture says is not only comparable to the relationship between a building and its chief cornerstone. That's what we find out in 1 Peter 2. That our relationship to Christ is that of a building of its chief cornerstone and the rest of the building. But even more than this, Jesus himself compares our union with him to the perichoretic mutual indwelling of the Trinity. He compares our union with him to the interior life of the triune God. Listen to the words here of John 17, 20 through 23. One of the more remarkable passages in all of scripture. And listen to how Christ talks about our relationship to him. John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. People of Westminster, you are united to Christ and loved by God. And love is incorporeal. It's non-material. It's eternal. It cannot be destroyed. Adam's body, the natural body, is destroyed. It's thrown in the ground in dishonor because natural things die. Even the church, the physical church, dies. David, not to steal my father's thunder here, but he'll get there soon enough. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, says, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And David wishes to build God a house, and his son Solomon builds the temple. But that physical temple was destroyed. So what happened? They rebuilt it. But what happened to that temple? That was destroyed too in 70 AD. Because things fall apart. The natural dies. The center cannot hold. But Christ says, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and I will raise it up in three days. 
Beloved, be assured that your body, which was sown in dishonor as united to Adam, is now united to Christ and has been and will be raised up. You are far more than stardust. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Live like it. Amen.